Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to our episode of Sheologians. We're here today to put the her in Wurzel. Oh, are we? It's a Jewish name. It's the name of the lady that, that I'm going to tell about. you about today. <laughs> my name is Summer Yeager. I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Joy. And Joy, I have a really cool story that happened this morning, and I was saving it. Oh, okay. Okay. I have so, a thing to tell you as well. Great, perfect. But after your thing. Okay. So, you were a reader when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Okay. You probably also have those books where, like, you read it as a kid. It was super magical to you, but you couldn't tell me what the title was. You couldn't tell me who the author was. Yes. And so now as an adult, you're like, yeah, I would love for my kids to read that because I had such an experience with it. But I couldn't tell you what it was. Sometimes it's reverse. Sometimes I could oh. tell you the title and the author. And nothing about it. But I it. could not tell you what it was about other than that I loved reading it when I was young. I only have the opposite. Where like I loved reading it. I cannot remember the title or the author. I think and if I read those books, I'd be like, oh, yeah. Okay. I know. I, I was here this, before. But I've been here. Okay. But well, my brain just doesn't have, it's not accessing those details. No. Currently. <laughs> so I have about five of those. Okay. And uh, my dad helped me find the last one. Okay. Actually, how he found it, I do not know because he didn't read it as a child. And it's a legitimate kid's book, like pictures. Uh -huh. You know, it's a picture book. Um, and all I could remember was there was a bad witch and each of the kids was named after a day of the week. Oh, that also sounds familiar. <sighs> I gave my dad that information and he bought me the book. It's called Hecate Peg. And now I have it. Wow. Would not have remembered that. Okay. So that knocked one of my five out. Okay. okay. So there's another one. And all I remember about it is there was a girl and a beach. By the way, if you go on Google and you're like, kids book with a girl at the beach, you're not getting anywhere. <laughs> gotcha. You're not going to find. Yeah. There's a lot of those. Um, but I just, I remember the magical feeling. I remember being transported when I read this book as a kid. So, okay. Today I'm talking about Elizabeth Wurzel. Okay. Because she was alive and in her 50s up until she died in 2020, she oh, did wow. She did podcast interviews. Okay. So this morning as I was getting ready, I was just listening to a podcast interview she did back in 2013. And honestly, it was kind of boring. So I wasn't super like 100% focused. Right. And then she said two words. She said Rockaway Beach. And it just punched me in the face. That's the beach where this story took place. It was called Rockaway Beach. So if you Google. Uh, that's the kind of detail that can find you a book. That's the kind of detail. <laughs> so I Googled a uh, children's book setting. Rockaway Beach, and I think on the second page of Google, there it was. I I knew once I saw the front cover, it would right, right, like it would be mm -hmm. there. Yeah, because um, well, yeah, if you have this clear image of the illustrations, that but the illustrations yes. not something you can no search no, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't, ha it wasn't in my brain. But once I saw the cover, right. I was like, okay, that's it. So the book is called, it's going to arrive tomorrow. I'm so excited. $7. That's very exciting. $7. It's on its way. Um, the book is called Lily's Crossing, and it won like a Newbery Award in 98. I've heard of Lily's Crossing. I I can, I have like an, in, uh, I wonder if sort of an outline of the cover yeah, in here, my head here right it now. Is. I remember what it smelled like. I remember what the font looks like. Oh, yes. Like. Mm -hmm. Lily's yep. Crossing. Okay, I don't remember the story. Remember that I loved it. I right. remember that it was like, you know, when you're little, there's books that you read and they spur you on to reading more books mm -hmm. because it was just a magical right. experience. That was this book for me. And so I like quick bought it on Amazon. It'll be here tomorrow. But then I was thinking, 
Well, I started thinking, oh man, I'm going to have my kids read this. Like my kids will love it. And then I had pause because I thought, what if this book is not great? And only in my like 10 year old brain, it was great. Right. Like, because, you know, 10 year olds don't have the best. Well, what happened to me last weekend (laughs) was that this is a recurring theme. Apparently last weekend, I watched a movie that I've probably seen 20 times before, Mm -hmm. but I haven't watched it in like the last seven or eight years. But prior to that, that, I did that too. Did you do that? Mm -hmm. What'd you watch? You don't want to tell me. So I don't know. I don't really want to tell you either. I'll tell you, but. I can tell you. Okay. It was Clueless. Oh, yeah. I don't remember that movie. Um, I remember that movie because my dad, I would go to my dad's house every other weekend. Yeah. He probably rented it for me every other weekend for one entire year. Did we ever think to buy it? No. Should we have bought it? Should I have been watching it? Did you buy it multiple times? Probably not. Right. There was a lot of things that I did not understand when i was watching it um right and then i just recently watched it and i was Was like was it a weird experience i was like wow this is a not a kid movie (laughs) i was like not at all right and um i don't know somehow it's okay because i think it's like isn't like loosely based off of emma jane austen's emma no idea i think so but Anyway, I did not know that. Well, what mine was watch? mine was Gladiator. Oh, okay. okay, okay. I really, I see. It's a good movie. I think ten year old me, or not ten year old me. I was not allowed to watch it when I was ten, but when I was younger, <laughs> I would have told you that's like the best movie of all time. I mean, well, it's my dad's favorite movie, right? Yes. So of course. I watched it growing up mm-hmm. quite a bit. Right. I know every line. Okay. I know every scene. I had the soundtrack on CD. I listened to it. The soundtrack's excellent. As I was falling asleep at night as like a 12-year-old. So so let me what I'm saying is very familiar. Right. Too familiar mm-hmm. with this film. Yes. Okay. But have not watched it probably in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I'm 33. And what really just shook my whole universe was that I noticed things I'd never noticed before. And given that I know every line in that movie, right. and I have the you soundtrack before, memorized, but you just didn't like the significance them. or just right. there were little details that had that in 20 viewings I had never caught. Right. And it's not that it's some like complex movie that's difficult to understand. Right. It's just like I'm 33 now, so I don't experience things like the same when I was 23 right. or when I was 10, like the experience was so different. So it just shocked me. Not that I thought, oh, I'll never have anything to learn ever again right. about this movie, but just that you could be so familiar with something and then revisit it as an adult and see new things. And like your perception could your change. Your perception so is much. different. Yeah. And so when I. <laughs> When I was thinking this morning about this book and how I want my kids to read it, I was like, what if this book is is another gladiator? What if this book is horrible? What if I don't want my kids to read this book at all? What if I who am who was I when I was 10? (laughs) What did I notice? The answer? Nothing. (laughs) So you're going to have to read it. I I can't wait to read it. (laughs) I want all those comfy. I'm sure it was. I mean, it won an award, you know, it was like children it was recognized as like great children's fiction right but i don't and remember back then they weren't like sneaking gay characters and right like kids yeah it, it came out in 98 so <laughs> we weren't doing that yet right. <laughs> um but if i remember properly i think the protagonist of the story was not someone i would want my daughters to hang out with like she was okay. kind of bleh. but maybe she i don't know anyway uh, to be determined i'll read it tomorrow when it comes in <laughs> I'll let you know next week. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, we'll let you know if it gets summer's. Yeah, seal like, of are my kids going to read this or not? Because should your kids read this? Lily's Crossing. Lily's Crossing. Yes no. to we'll be, see you next week. To be determined because wow, I've just become a different person. Oh uh, <laughs> yes, I would. Uh, yes, <laughs> same. Well, and speaking of next week, yeah, I am Joy, and yes. I'm here with my beautiful co-host. Summer and uh, this weird thing keeps happening to me mm. 
because we haven't really ever done this before where like you I take an episode and you take an episode and and we've done like I should say we've done it before with storytelling episodes but then we usually record those two episodes together Together. yeah and then one other time you had your own episode and I had mine but right now we're doing these constantly yeah week in week out Yeah. yeah and so I keep having this moment where I'm like it's Friday morning (laughs) is today my Friday (laughs) and I know it's not my Friday but the panic but it's like that (laughs) yeah that dream you have where you're back in school and you're like oh my gosh there's a huge project due today and I didn't I didn't know because I've only been in my dream for (laughs) yeah and I've only been back in high school for 30 minutes (laughs) how could I have had time to put together a project yeah um but yeah, so uh, that's just my weird little random anxious thought that I've been uh-huh. having lately. Yeah. Which is like, oh my gosh, did I get, Yeah, am I off in my count? Yeah. No. Is it, do I need to get something together really quickly? <laughs> I definitely am the kind of person where if I have to do something at 1 p.m., I do my best work at 9 a.m. Right. Um, We've been having this conversation because technically, technically we have two weeks. I know. To prepare no, the stuff for each of these, and and it's not that no, it's not that I'm not taking two weeks doing some form of preparation, right? But I just yeah, the way my brain works is I do all the reading that I want on the person in two weeks, right? And then at the last minute, that's when I suddenly have the confidence to organize my thoughts. Right. And I was that way in school <laughs> too. Slash must do it. <laughs> Well, like, I feel, I actually feel good about it. Oh, yeah. Like, if I tried to start organizing my thoughts in the next three days on my next mm-hmm. topic, I would be, like, writing it. And I'd be like, this the is details trash. are not complete. This is garbage. Yeah. You have to wait till <laughs> you this have morning, this, I was like, like, whole thing. This is what I want to say. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is That's about exactly, that. Yeah. I know. I crunch, totally get it. That crunch time. You just have to kind of marinate. For, that's how yes. we do all our other episodes too or similar in that way we need to marinate yeah and we can't start actually writing notes until we know what we're gonna say otherwise i feel like it's all just garbage it's no it's trash and then i do things like like with last week's feminist <laughs> uh-huh. with arlie i had another girl i know totally you I always was, i was marinating options. yeah i was marinating on this other girl for such a long time and then it just wasn't coming so like yeah. midweek last week, I was like, throw her out, throw her out <laughs> onto the next one. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we got to find someone new. I did the same thing. I mean, but, this, this girl, I, I mean, we'll, I will just get into it. You can leave us a voicemail yeah. at 470-465-0475. Support the work either at sheologians.com or patreon.com slash sheologians. And you can join our book club there. It's the book club. Wow. You guys. Oh, man. I just. Oh, Jerry Bridges. If what you haven't it? read Jerry Bridges, you ha- you must. If you need to counsel yourself daily, yes. if you are counsel, if you counsel other people, yes. read, read. I mean, read Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges in general, but the fruitful life is really, yeah. Every sentence. What I love about Jerry Bridges is there's no wasted sentence. No, there's no wasted mm. thought, and there's constantly scripture. And I think that's what I think the accessibility is what made us feel like it was lighter reading but it's not lighter reading because of the deep discipleship stuff that he's talking about very accessible reading it's like if you could make a puritan modern because reading the reading the puritans is difficult work with a lot of payout Mm -hmm. and i feel like reading jerry bridges is accessible moderate work with a lot of payout yes uh and he said puritans also they don't waste a thought they don't waste a sentence there's lots of scripture um so i feel like if you've always wanted to read the puritans for the benefits that your heart and your brain will get (laughs) but you're not ready jerry bridges is a great bridge Uh, i see what you did there (laughs) to the puritans (laughs) i'm so sorry everybody that i (laughs) at that very nice i'm really sorry (laughs) well who did you pick for this week we're on our third wave we're on our third wave so um i picked elizabeth wurzel 
she uh, is not who you would have thought. That's kind of why I went with her. Okay. Um, there's a lot of reasons I went with Elizabeth Wurzel, and I want to talk about her. Number one, she wrote a wildly popular, wildly successful book that was released in 1994 called Prozac Nation. Oh, I did not know that was her. That was her. Prozac Nation. Christina Ricci did the movie. Yes. Um, and it was based on her memoir. She was only 27 when it was published. So she was born in 1967. She died, not I mean, January 7th of 2020 from complications, uh, a disease that she developed from having breast cancer. Okay. So I believe if I am not, cancer is a lot more complicated than you think it is. Um, yes. She developed. Well, and it affects a lot of things. Yeah. The disease that killed her, she developed from having breast cancer. So okay. I guess it wouldn't be completely wrong to say she died from breast cancer. But in a, if you really know a lot about cancer, it would be wrong to say that. Okay. It was because of the breast cancer that this condition killed her. But anyway, that's not the point of this episode. All right. Um, so she wrote the book Prozac Nation. It was published when she was 27. The reason that I... She was a feminist. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's really weird. I don't know if you're experiencing this yet. But as you learn about the person you're going to cover for the third wave... My girl was busy on Instagram before she died. So it's super kind of weird being able to go through someone's Instagram. Yeah. Now, granted, she was in her 50s, but she was very busy on social media, Mm -hmm. as all smart liberals tend to be. Right. Um, She was really obsessed with Beto (laughs) O'Rourke. If okay. you if you like go through her most recent because her Instagram is still there. And so I, I spent some time just reading her posts and um, seeing what she was up to later in her life. It's kind of weird after it's weird you're yeah. looking at like the handwritten illegible journals of the first wave feminists. You, yeah, it's interesting to come so far. <laughs> now we're reading their Instagrams. Um All right. So she had three major books, Prozac Nation, which was published in 1994. um, And then her second book, B.I.T.C.H. in Praise of Difficult Women, 1998. She was on the original cover of that book, Topless, giving... I had a feeling that in the third wave, we would kind of have to start censoring some stuff and... Wow, yes. Coming up with some alternate words. (laughs) I'm not going to spell it again, so... (laughs) Um, that came out in 1998. Uh, it was in praise of difficult women. It was a, quote, fascinating tract of female behavior and how it has been interpreted, misinterpreted. It is among the most entertaining femini- feminist manifestos ever written. And then her final book, More Now Again, published in 2001. It was the follow-up to her Prozac Nation memoir. And it was all about her addiction to cocaine and Ritalin and how she got off of that. So... Very, uh, her drug use was a main, it was the center of a lot of her writing. I will say, so the interview I was listening to her on was in 2013 on a podcast called Long Form. And, uh, what really, one of the things that really struck me about this interview was how so much of what she was saying just in 2013, um, so less than a decade ago, almost a decade ago, but less than a decade ago, um, she would not get away with today. It would not have been woke enough. Right. Um, the fact that she uh, was of Jewish descent living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan her entire life. Um, and one thing that she wanted the guys interviewing her to know was, although she grew up on the Upper West Side, don't feel too excited for her because her apartment was over a food city. And you know what those places are like. And I just thought, man, a sentence you would not get away with today (laughs) without being canceled. (laughs) But, you know, white liberals are going to white liberal and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, she had to grow up next to a food city. Unbelievable. I cannot believe that. Anyway. I mean, the Upper West Side plus long time cocaine addiction pretty much screams money to me (laughs) i don't know what else to tell you (laughs) so um elizabeth wurzel 
Okay, so she was a writer, obviously. One of the things that I read of hers that was truly, truly fascinating to me um, was when she found out that her uh, father was not her father. So her mom lied to her her entire life about who her father was. Turns out, um, you know that very famous photo of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. when he was marching across the bridge? Oh, uh uh-huh. Her dad, her actual dad, took that photo. Uh, so she grew up among the elite society of Manhattan. She didn't, but her mom was single and they lived over a food city. So don't get too excited for her. Was the moral of her story when she told her own life tale. She wasn't too much of a socialite. No. Um, but I was really interested in when she was talking about how she found out that her father was not her father. Um And so this is what she said, and I just thought this was a really interesting feminist way of viewing the whole situation. Mm -hmm. She said, because her mom lied to her her whole life. Which is, yeah, that's wrong. Definitely. (laughs) She said, so I have to forgive my mother. Of course I do. She's the only parent I have. She wanted to be a single mother. She did not want men to tell her what to do. I wanted to be independent, she recently told me. I wanted to make my own way. She was a woman in a man's world. She did not know how to have what she wanted without being duplicitous. In 1967, the year I was born, a woman could not have an abortion or a credit card. My mother tried to get a job at IBM, but she was too qualified to work at the same place as her loser husband. My mother had to take the side entrance into the Random House office building with all the other women. Men made my mother feel shabby. She thought her best bet was lying. That is the corruption of sexism. My mother lied to me, too. Because I am a feminist, I have to forgive her. My mother is the author of this story. She made me who I am. Who else is like this? 50 years is a long lie. So she found out around the age of 50. Wow. um, Who her father really was. And she did know him. That would be that would be very interesting to find out at 50. Yes. That this guy that you knew, he was much older. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a friend that, um, that found out that she was adopted much later in life, like in her fifties. Uh huh. It's interesting. Very. (laughs) Yeah. My, yeah. I mean, my grandmother was adopted and it was, uh, a little boy down the street that told her. Well, well, there you go. You don't know who's going (laughs) to, You never anyway. know who's going <laughs> to out your lie. So just don't. <laughs> All that to say, I just thought it was super interesting that ultimately she blamed sexism right, for her mother's actions. And I find that all a lot of the time what you find in feminism is that the sin that women are guilty of is never their fault. Right. It's always the system. It's always out there. It's always something else that made them do this. And so the right. reason she's try- she's convincing herself that she has to forgive her mother and she can forgive her mother because it wasn't actually her mother that did it to her. It was right. society that put her mother in that situation and her mom just did the best that she could. Well, and like principally, her mother did a feminist thing. Mm-hmm. So in order to be consistent with her own beliefs, she can't fault her mother. Right. For behaving principally as a feminist. Right. So even if she did do something wrong, she can't have done something wrong. Yes. Because she did it for the right reasons. Yes. So I think that, so in the third wave of feminism, which is what we're talking about, and it's really interesting to talk about it because you and I grew up in the 90s, which is when I think the third wave really kind of figured out who it was and what they were doing. So these concepts are even though we were little, it's a familiar time. Yeah. Like I didn't have to Google like, what is a riot girl? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I knew mm-hmm. to some extent, a lot of it was hidden because we had good parents that were right. Uh, you know, to the extent <laughs> right. that they could looking out for us and protecting us right. from adult content. Right. Um, but it wasn't, it's not just like a totally unknown world. No. It started becoming more mainstream. Yes. It was part of the grunge and the pop punk and the punk era kind of becoming standard. I mean, even if you even if you consider when you look at 
just like kids entertainment mm-hmm. even just disney mm-hmm. you see a massive shift yes when you start moving into things like little mermaid which came out in 1989 the year we were both born like that was a very different story from yep. what came yes. before it so even we were from Mulan. exposed yeah we were t- we we're totally exposed this is what i believe about a lot of our thinking nowadays even just yeah we don't even realize how we think that what's written into our culture has always been written in there but it's just what we've known it's not what's always been there right hey elliot <laughs> um so i do want to stop really quickly and talk about the riot girl manifesto right. because i'm going to make the argument that she was one of the riot girls okay. that brought it to the movement to where it was um so the riot girl movement uh, basically was in early 90s. You know, think where did grunge come from? Seattle, Washington State. You had uh, bands like uh, Bikini Kill and their lead singer Kath- Kathleen Hanna. Um, she wrote the Riot Girl Manifesto, which she published in 1991 in something called the Bikini Kill Zine 2. Right. So they're not magazines. They're zines. Very 90s it's so thing. It's funny how much feminists accomplish through magazines. It's it's absolutely it's wild. It's almost like we should be reading and writing. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, influence there. So the and a lot of them did it with children and husbands. Amazing. Wow, they were able to actually actually accomplish something. It's wild. So the Riot Girl movement, they had a manifesto that they published. Just became very popular. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because it's rather long. Here's a couple highlights. Because we hate capitalism in all its forms and see our main goal as sharing information and staying alive. Just let me stop. Our main goal, sharing information and staying alive. I mean, I guess that's pretty much everybody's goal. Anyway, instead of making profits off of being cool according to traditional standards, because we are angry at society that tells us girl equals dumb, girl equals bad, girl equals weak, because we are unwilling to let our real and valid anger be diffused and or turned against us via the internalization of sexism as witnessed in girl-girl jealousism and self-defeating girl-type behaviors, because I believe with my whole heart, mind, body, one word, that girls constitute a revolutionary soul force that can and will change the world for real. So these are their, like, foundational. Right. Let us be angry. We hate capitalism. Um, we don't want to be cool according to traditional standards. This is when you really see that kind of, I think, I think the third wave is first wave feminism realized. It was when it became cool to buck the trend. It was when it became cool. Um, it was when you have this, uh, sex and gender finally separated totally. So in, 1949, Simone de Beauvoir said that you're not born a woman, you become one through social processes. And she was, that was the person I threw out, just so you know, for myself. Oh, really? Life. Yeah. That would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. She she was a lot. She she was a lot. She was a lot. <laughs> um, you guys can feel free to look her up. Yeah. She Best of luck lot. with that. <laughs> so she said that back in 1949, and by the 90s, sociologists in colleges and schools are actually teaching that yes. gender roles... Sex and gender, they're not the same thing. Gender roles are a societal construction. They're not inherent to your biology. And so in this way, feminists totally laid the ground for queer theory, gender theory. And this was all seeded by the first wave feminists Mm -hmm. who, what did they want? They wanted to be able to determine what they got to do. They wanted to not have the same constraints that women had. They wanted to separate sex and gender with the whole women can do anything that men can do. It's that total like egalitarian utopia that has led to everything that we're in the middle of today. Yep. And I really think the 90s, the third wave is where you finally if the first waivers could see it, if they were going to be logically consistent, would have had to say, yeah, this is what we wanted. Right. They might well, have They it, might have recoiled. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> the third wave is when there was finally this recognition that 
in order to empower women and in order to fully realize women support women, you couldn't um, discriminate against the behaviors of women. No matter what they Even were. And in the second wave, there was, um, what's it, was it Jermaine Greer that did the Playboy I don't know. Expose. I don't know. She like, I think it was Jermaine Greer. She went undercover as like a Playboy bunny. Oh, yeah. And then wrote this whole thing and talked about how they were like degraded and all this stuff. You guys, by the third wave, we had to throw that out the window. We had to throw like, and even now people have gotten in trouble for suggesting Mm -hmm. that women objectifying themselves isn't feminist. Because that's old, archaic thinking. Right. So you, this is where you, this is where we finally see we have to support, well, and even we're even talking about how she had to accept the actions of her mother because, because women she support was a f- women. Because women support women. That's exactly right. Uh, we don't do the jealousism, as they said in the manifesto. What a stupid word that that can't be real. Anyway, jealousism. Jealousism. Um, <laughs> so we she- draw the line there. <laughs> jealousism. Yes. <laughs> So Elizabeth Wurzel embodied all of that. She posted on Instagram in 2019, even before I am a feminist, I am a skate punk. I am the worst thing ever. I have a bad attitude. I'll ruin your party. I'll steal your boyfriend. I am always late. But when you're late, I'll hold it against you. I am unreasonable. You can't help it. You love me anyway. She wrote this in her 50s. But she is the embodiment of that riot girl girl culture where it's like, I'm a girl. I'm going to treat you however I want. I'm going to behave however I want. And you must empower me because I'm a woman. Another uh, Instagram post. I had an abortion. I've been sexually harassed. I have breast cancer. I am a woman in a men's world. I have PTSD from being female. Beware of me. My bite is worse than my bark. When Kavanaugh is confirmed, women will turn to terror. I can't read the next line. Profanity. Go back to the golf course in Aiken, South Carolina, where you belong. She's talking to Lindsey Graham. This is what a feminist looks like. So, okay. Agreed. Yes. (laughs) I agree. All right. Here's what you need to remember about Elizabeth Wurzel. The f- I really think a f- she is the, f- for me, she is the face of the third wave. Prolific writer. She, her Prozac Nation was so successful in the early 90s that she is often credited for making the memoir as a genre even possible. The thing about Prozac Nation is that it is the most narcissistic, self-obsessed piece of writing that you've ever read in your entire... I mean, it reads like those Instagram posts. It's like, I'm awful. You love me. I'm obsessed with me. I will treat you horrible. Which is feminism. Which is... At its very essence. <laughs> yes. Um, but of course, all of her books are about her lifelong drug abuse. And this was a time when Prozac, Xanax, all that stuff just became what everybody was on. Mm-hmm. This is what everybody was doing. This is what I told you I was going to have to talk about. But... <sighs> okay. We're going to talk about depression. She was depressed. Okay. So in all this pursuit of her abortions and her feminism and her freedom, the woman was very, very depressed. And she has some... yeah like we talked about last week with Arlie, where sometimes you read what feminists have to say and they have these observations that essentially tell on themselves where it's like, yes, because you are made in the image of God. Right. And so this truth that you're experiencing, that you're seeing, it's just inescapable because you live in God's world. Yeah. And that's all there is to it. Um, well, and, I mean, we were even just reading one of our chapters this week with the fruitful life was joy. Right. And there is no true joy separate from intimacy with God, desire for God, motivation, actions motivated by God. And so it, we, we, I would never deny that this world is full of sad, wicked people. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, it makes sense. She says some things. This Okay, how about this? She said, 
in the book Prozac Nation, that's the thing about depression. A human being can survive almost anything as long as she sees the end in sight. But depression is so insidious and it compounds daily that it's impossible to ever see the end. And I thought, what a true thing. Like, yes, if you don't have the hope of an end, like if you don't believe that Jesus is making all things new, if you don't have the hope of eternity, yes, daily, that will compound daily until you don't even, you can't even see past today. Mm -hmm. What a salient and true thing. Like, yes, I would also be very depressed if that's how I thought. Another thing she said, that's, that is all I want in life for this pain to seem purposeful. And doesn't that point you to being made in the image of God? Like why can Christians go through suffering and trials? Because we believe that it's all purposeful. Even just temper their behavior. Some of the sadness from people is just because I can't do everything and whatever I want, whenever I want it, and not feel bad. I want to be able to do whatever I want and behave however I want and feel happy. Yes. Yes. When was that? Where was the promise of that ever? Well, there is none. There is no promise. There is a promise contrary to that, which is that behaving however you want, whenever you want, leads to destruction. Yes. Another quote. I was so scared to give up depression. Fearing that somehow the worst part of me was actually just me. And I really do believe that people are depressed, are genuinely afraid to give it up. Because once you do, you have to embrace something else. You know, it's like when we talk about sin or sanctification, Paul always talks about you put this off and you put this on. And all of us know, well, if I put my depression off... I don't know what to put on. I'll have nothing. Right. And if I'm wicked and sad, there is no alternative for me. I am this. I am this. Right. Another one. I start to think there really is no cure for depression. That happiness is an ongoing battle. And I wonder if it isn't one I'll have to fight for as long as I live. I wonder if it's worth it. And I just thought, yes, this is another common belief that we all have the fact and she's right happiness is an ongoing battle you have to fight yeah. for joy mm-hmm. she's absolutely right and there are there's only two options you fight for joy or you're depressed or you want to die those are that's it yeah and and just the fact that she and she's saying i wonder if it's worth it and it's like yeah if you have no hope of eternity yeah listen if i had no hope of eternity i would be like this is not worth it this is not worth it there's a reason why, and we know this from we know this from studies, the smarter you are, like people with lifelong depression tend to have higher IQs. Right. And it really is because they know about how sad this world yeah. is and filled with sin it can be. Right. And but they don't have Christ, so that's all they can see. Yeah. And I think she's, I mean, she's one of those. Okay. Last quote from Prozac Nation. <sighs> I think this one's true of a lot of people, too. In a strange way, I had fallen in love with my depression. I loved it because I thought it was all I had. I thought depression was the part of my character that made me worthwhile. I thought so little of myself, felt that I had such scant offerings to give to the world, that the one thing that justified existence at all was my agony. Which is also kind of a, I mean, it's interesting because that, that thought is also, especially amongst writers and humanists and sort of that, the bohemian intelligentsia historically, there is this romanticized yes. agony. Yes. Like just the de- being depressed right. is so romantic yeah. in that world. And I really do think it's because it, it does in part point to you have knowledge of the world. Right. It points to the, the fact that you know things. But what I hear when she says that is that when she says the only thing that justifies her existence is her agony, that is a guilty conscience. She knows she's not right. 
she knows something is wrong with her, but she's suppressing the truth of what it is. If she was free, there wouldn't be agony. Right. You wouldn't have to feel like you have to justify your existence if you don't have a guilty conscience. I just thought, wow, this is so true. And I often, you know, when I hear women talk about being depressed and all the reasons why it actually makes sense. For not for non-Christian women, yes. For Christian women, no. And as I was reading a lot about, because like I said, so her books, I own two of them. I've, I mean, I remember picking up one of them for whatever reason 20 years ago and uh-huh. flipping through it and reading some of it. Um, and I had a friend who really loved the book Prozac Nation. And we were young, when, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she had well, been. some of us ran in that crowd, that like sort of romantic <laughs> writer. Oh, yeah. She was a great writer. She was a great writer. Um, And sort of the self-indulgent, the, and well, and in a weird way, as young girls, we were meant to look at women that did whatever they wanted as heroic. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, look, she had the power and the gumption to like. Yeah. Sort of burst the societal Well, pressures. she's bold and right. she's into she punk music and yeah. yeah, and she's literally the saddest person you've ever heard of right. in your entire life yeah. and she's guilty and not free. And why would you look up to that? Um but here's what I want to say about medication. In all of the books that she's written, which had to do like I said, so she's been on everything. Okay. Mm-hmm. Addicted to cocaine, Ritalin, put so she's on self-medicated and medicated she, by a doctor. Yes. Just medicated, medicated, medicated. Number one, it did not help her. It did not make her happy. It did not alleviate her symptoms. She was she remained suicidal forever. Um but I was listening to this uh clinical psychologist years ago on a podcast, and he was saying he works in a he, so he works with clients in a clinical setting. Okay, so he's not a general practitioner. It's not like right. you would go to his office for a checkup and mention that you're depressed and leave with a prescription for Zoloft. Right. Okay, like clinical psychologist working with severely de- all kinds of problems. But in this episode I was listening to, he was particularly discussing his severely depressed and, a- and anxious clients. And he said, listen, the first thing any clinical psychologist does in these settings trying to help somebody with depression and anxiety the number one thing is not a pill the first thing you do with your clients every single time is you make them wake up at the same time every morning that's the first thing you do and he went on to explain the connection between a healthy sleep cycle and a lack of depression. And he said with something like 85% of his clients who had su- who had reported severe depression and anxiety for their entire lives, after two to three weeks of just waking up at the same time every day, their symptoms had decreased by, they self-reported by like 67, 75%. Wow. That one step. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> that got me looking into why are we medicating? If if sleep is such a huge factor right. in whether or not someone can handle their depression, why are we giving them medication that literally changes the makeup of their brains irrevocably, irrevocably for the rest of their lives and often has side effects worse than depression, yeah. like suicidal ideation? Right. A lot of, a lot of, I mean, obviously not all antidepressants are created equal, but a lot of them show, are proven to be most efficient when used for short periods of time. And then some classifications of them do actually the the solution they're creating in your brain there it's actually breaking the <clears throat> it's breaking that process and then creating a reliance on medication to yeah. to create that to continue yeah. the process yeah 
And yeah, there's not, um, there's a lot of really troubling research done on antidepressants, specifically uh, SSRIs. Right. But Well, the two most dangerous drugs to get off of are benzodiazepines and alcohol. Yeah. They will kill uh, kill you. And benzos are the most commonly prescribed anti-anxiety medication for anybody that doesn't. Yes. No. I've spoken that. to somebody who was on benzos for a long time and could not get off of them. And yeah. I was like, why? Because you can't, you can have, it's the same thing with alcohol, like you said. Yeah. You, you will, you can have seizure, like seizure she, and die. She was like, I felt like I was dying. So mm-hmm. I, even though she's miserable on them. Yeah. I mean, they've destroyed her life. You have to, you need a medical detox from. Even with the medical detox, she couldn't make it through. Oh, wow. It was so painful for her. It, w- it was it was ruining her eyesight. It was ruining her ability to sleep. She gained something like 60 pounds. That she- is a really other unfortunate part of antidepressants is there's usually a considerable weight gain, which does not help people feel better in general. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that clinical psychologists know they always, clinical psychologists always, 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 always address sleep. It's their number one priority. And so I was curious about why. Like, why is that? And the more I read about it, what I came across consistently, and you can look this up, is that that whole chemical imbalance thing is a myth. Like, it's a theory that sounds right. And we've been saying it for so long and the doctors have been, it's all, it's like, it, it's a theory like um, evolution is a theory that just like everybody said it for so long that now right. we don't even know how to like have a conversation about it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a part of what everybody believes. Um, so namely what they've been saying for so long is, well, you have low levels of serotonin and that's why you have depression. And if we balance that, then the drugs will correct that and then you'll be fine. But we've refuted that. Yeah, there's not actually, at least the last time I spoke with a friend that knows a lot about this, there's not good research to show that serotonin levels are even connected necessarily right. with de- like right. depression. The connection that we are, that if you read the science, and it's, listen, it's kind of hard to find because, well, there's a lot of money at stake here. And if, if well, do- yeah, because it breaks, if, if a pill breaks the system in your brain, to require the pill <laughs> right well and someone's like, making money for the rest of your life yeah and at the end of the day if we start admitting that so the science has been pointing for years to a much larger connection between depression and your REM cycle what kind of REM cycles can you get how good is your sleep and at the end of the day we all make fun of people Right. It's common now. If someone's mm-hmm. like, oh, you're depressed, go for a jog, eat better, get better sleep. Right. Yeah. Everyone makes fun of you. Mm-hmm. But the science is pointing to that. Right. That is what the science is pointing right. to. And I would also like to say by what standard? Because I believe that the Bible would also point to this. Right. Um, now, we're not we're not being ignorant of the fact that when you don't feel good, it is hard no, that's the point. Con- right. That's you're not point of it. you're not sleeping. You don't feel good. Right. Why? I mean, right. Well, you can't continue the way you're going. Postpartum depression? Yeah. Yeah, you haven't slept. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We know you have postpartum depression. We know you're not okay. You haven't slept. I mean, this is okay. Why does any of this matter? <laughs> Why does any of it matter? Why did you turn this episode into a mental health <laughs> discussion? Because that is because that because is what feminism important. has created. Yeah. It has created well, that's just the that's just the natural progression of the humanist yes. materialist. It's yes. got to be your brain. If you're having a problem with your feelings and emotions, those come from your brain. That's right. So there must be a problem with your there brain. There must be a problem with the chemicals in your brain. Mm-hmm. It can't possibly be your lifestyle or the choices that you're making. Right. And yeah, okay, we're not disregarding. We've talked about depression. It can't depression. possibly be that you have just done whatever you wanted whenever you wanted for your entire life. And now it's affecting you. and yourself. And now it's affecting you horribly. Now, obviously, like you said, we know that our, I think there are occasions where I don't have a problem with some sort of medical help 
in times of dire need. However, the science does not even support lifelong use of the of this medication. Well, and the system is broken too. You can be you can be diagnosed with clinical depression two weeks after you have lost a child. Right. Or, or from a traumatic event. Right. Like like if you were in your house and someone burglarized you. Right. And like two weeks later, yeah. you can be diagnosed acceptably. Right. With clinical depression. Right. Even though you just experienced this. An extremely traumatic event that you have not even had time to process or heal from. And so, you know, I just as as Christians, we need to know that the very air we're breathing when it comes to, quote unquote, mental health has been informed by science that we know isn't true and by people who don't see you as a holistic being, mind, body, and soul. And we have a lot of Christians that want to be treated by a system that denies that they are a holistic being with a mind and a body and a soul. And I don't see any evidence that we cannot, we shouldn't treat people holistically. Right. Like like I said, Yes, you can go to your general practitioner and, you know, I had to fill out a questionnaire the other day. It was absolutely ridiculous to find out if I'm depressed or not. Yeah. And it's like the questions were all. Some of that's really sad, too, because like people just don't have resources. They don't have people in their life. They don't. Right. Like. Right. But the fact that even secular clinical psychologists would not initially treat your depression with a pill, but rather attempt to fix other areas of your life first, lets me know that there's something else going on in that system. And ultimately, Elizabeth Wurzel's life was ruined by this stuff. I mean, it's it's well, it's not a free pass. We don't even know. We don't even know the effects. We don't know. We have no idea. What the long-term effects are. I know. We have no idea. I know. We know nothing. We all know. We know a lot more than we used to know. about our brains yeah but we don't know we don't know and a lot of what even still a lot of what's like (laughs) accepted as science Mm -hmm. are is a theory i know that is some some of it's more substantiated than others some of it is very legit i'm not don't get me wrong like but i mean even if you want to skip skip the mental health hurdle and go on to the neurodivergence hurdle. Sure. Even in terms of like ADHD, autism, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. We just have no way of knowing mm-hmm. how a person's brain is compared to another, compared mm-hmm. to when they were young, compared mm-hmm. to when they were old at all times, mm-hmm. when they're in stress, when they're mm-hmm. relaxed. Like we know a lot, mm-hmm. but it's nothing compared to what there is to yeah. know. It's, I, yeah. it's we have made so many decisions based off of such yeah. little information. Yeah. And I think I guess if I could say anything to people who maybe um are on antidepressants or really just maybe feel defensive about the whole mm-hmm. conversation is um you cannot deny that there is an epidemic of antidepressant use in our nation. There is a that dependence on them is not good. And you definitely can't say that they've never caused any harm because we know that they have. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to be wise. We need to, um, you know, like I said, I mentioned it's no it's no wonder to me that postpartum depression is a common thing. You don't get to sleep. So what does that mean that we need to do as the church? We need to be there for Mm. women who are postpartum. Like we need to be the church to those people that are going to be susceptible to depression, who have physical um, challenges or life circumstances that could make them susceptible to depression. And that doesn't mean the thing is, as I think a lot of us want to believe in a magic pill. We just want to believe, take this pill, everything will be better. Right. That's not how humanity works. That's not how our bodies work. That's not how sin and or experiencing a broken world works. 
And if you read Elizabeth Wurzel's life in her own words and her observations about her life and depression, you very clearly see the fingerprint of God in her image bearing, where she very much knows that her problem is she loves her depression. She knows no other way to live. She has no way out. She's not willing to fight for joy. And she has no hope. There's no reason to believe that her depression was a chemical imbalance. Right. She had no hope. She was guilty. She was trying to outrun all those gross feelings. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, um, again, and a lot of clinical psychology will talk about people with depression. A common denominator other than their sleep is bad. They're not good sleepers mm-hmm. is they don't know what to do with their negative emotions. Right. And yeah, but that's where we we disciple people and we come alongside them and the word will train you how to deal with your negative right. thoughts and emotions. Let's be clear. The word doesn't train you to pretend those things don't exist. If that is what if that's the circle you're running in right now, you need some help. You need to yeah. reach out to the elders of your church. You need to talk yeah. to your husband. There is nothing in this process that involves you making it up and pretending <laughs> like you're feeling joy when you're yeah. not. Yeah. That's not that's not at all what we're saying. No. That but like I said, so the question the the common denominator is it uh people with depression, they don't know what to do right. with their negative thoughts. They don't process right. them. But Christians know what to do. We've been given that we've been given yeah. that answer. We understand that our emotional expression is meant to be like redirected through the word and yeah. redirected towards obedience. And that doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Right. If it's not something that you know how to do, I absolutely believe, you know, when I am not scared as a Christian, when psychologists and doctors start talking about neural pathways and like having to build new neural pathways right. and new ways of thinking like, yes, that's absolutely true. There is nothing like being sedentary and having to become an active a runner participant <laughs> In your life. Yes. Yes. There is nothing that that is hard. It's hard. It's very hard. Very difficult. I'm not saying that you just, oh, you read the Bible today and now you suddenly know exactly what to do. And it is uphill work, but I totally believe that like God has given us the means to do that and he'll get his grace is sufficient for you to do that. And it could be a long uphill battle that is discouraging at many points. But again, if you're... You, it's like Elizabeth Wurzel knew you have two options. You can fight for joy or you can be depressed. Those are your two options. Right. You don't have, uh, there's no third way here. There's no yeah. like third way out. And I just think the more we look at these women, you see this, you know, who was it? Who was your lady? Lucy Stone that was yeah. saying her job was to sow discontent. Mm-hmm. And then the third waivers are reaping. They're reaping. I picked her. Yeah. For her statements on that. Yeah. Because she did it. She did it. And then you see in the third wave, we're reaping that. Yeah. We see this total just punk rock attitude, drugs, alcohol, I'm depressed and having to glorify it because that's the path that they chose. And you know what? If they were right, spiritually and philosophically, doing whatever they wanted would have worked. Yeah. Right. Just so you know. Right. From from a standpoint where we're all just cells or whatever energy bouncing around in the universe, yep. it it's not going to affect you if you hurt someone or do something that negatively affects another person. It's not going right. to affect you. It should have worked. Right. It should have worked. It if she, she remained consistent with her worldview, she should have felt better. Right. At a certain point, if she had just, if it she had only just sought. The things that would make her happy. Mm-hmm. Drugs. Mm. I'm assuming promiscuity. Uh-huh. Um, Abortion. Yeah. It's all the things now that the world says make. And that's the illusion. The illusion of the of the current world is that there is happiness. Um, but it's right. just a fleeting momentary expression. And happiness or joy, as we are more appropriately af- referring to it as. Right. Joy is not just a feeling. Right. It's something that you do. It's an act. Right. 
So, right. so just seeking the next positive emotion and then the next positive emotion and then going into these enormous ca- caverns of depression in between, that is what the world does. Right. It's a coping mechanism. Right. But it's it's a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid solution. Right. And that's what I'm, I think that's where I'm getting to is that I do think there are some cases where some kind of pharmaceutical can function as a Band-Aid that is eventually meant to be ripped off and thrown right. away. Right. They are not long-term that solutions. That is the function of a Band-Aid. That's the function a of a Band-Aid. is to contain... Uh, open wound to keep bugs out or right. germs out <laughs> to protect the area, and then it is removed. Yes, when healing is occurring. Yes, and the lifelong again, we don't know the long term effects of life lifelong SSRI use. We know that withdrawal from benzos can kill you; they yeah. can take your life. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people accidentally become addicted to them, too. Right. And we're not you're not told that up front. So what I'm saying is none of Elizabeth Wurzel's pursuits led her to happiness or joy. None of her feminism, her unbridled anger that she never dealt with led her to joy. And I think her life has become a blueprint for how so many people live their live and die. Mm hmm. And her books, which are highly celebrated, it's so ironic to me because her writing is so celebrated and it's a blueprint for misery. Mm -hmm. And we don't even, it's almost like you're, y'all are playing yourselves. Well, you're, you spend your life looking for your most authentic self and the only thing you ever come back to is misery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Uh, yeah i hope that would be a sign it's not to the fool it's not no it's not um if you want to read actually i haven't read i've read excerpts from this book but a new book just came out called anti-depressed and it's basically about the harm and dependence of widespread antidepressant use how it got this bad where we should go um her name is beverly thompson okay um and the whole point is that she she wants people to actually understand what antidepressants are. Right. Because you would think from the word antidepressant mm-hmm. that this is just going to make you not mm-hmm. depressed. Especially SSRIs. Especially that is a very... Yes. There's a yes. lot of... I remember when I learned about it, I was like, wow. That's a... Vi- I mean, it's like almost cruel how opposite of yes. what it seems like it would be doing. Yes. Compared to what it's actually doing. Yes. Um, a lot of doctors are, um, and it, I mean, it addressed the chemical imbalance myth that mm-hmm. has been marketed to our entire nation. Um, and I got to read little excerpts of it here and there. And I just, I mean, it reads, it's, it's scientific. So I just want you to know, it's kind of like reading a textbook in a way because right. it's a scientific book. Right. But if you're really curious, I, I would recommend it. She's not a Christian. So I'll just tell you that there, but she's looked at the science on this stuff. And I just think, yeah, if you're curious, we're all about substantiated science here. This could be, <laughs> this could be the book for you. Okay. Well, um, I wish, you know, maybe we should leave like the happy stuff for the end in the future. Because... I know. Seriously. <laughs> well, so here's the thing we're doing. This is even though it's feminism character studies, this is a feminism is poison series. That is what it is. That's that yeah. was the this is our response to people requesting another feminism is poison series. So we just spent some time talking about poison, literally, literally, <laughs> and um, it's just it's just kind of heavy. I'm, we can't always end it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, even just considering, you know, we talked about like her recent death. Yeah, and it um, it's so it's brain. a reality. Yeah, it's a reality, which yeah. is that um, you know, like I just I just said, you keep living your best life. You keep seeking to actualize yourself and you just keep coming to misery. And what's really sad is that a lot of people just die that way. And yes, um, 
there's not a lot to say about that other than just sort of silence. Yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of nice ways yeah. to talk about that. No. I think what we need as as Christian women is we I think the I think the call here, the reason why talking about this is worth it is just to really do that evaluation of am I living the way the world lives? Because this this her time, her writing, that's the air that we all grew up breathing. And some of her observations are correct and her solutions are always wrong um, because her solution doesn't begin or end with God, who he is and what he said. And so if there is in any way that we are, you know, maybe glorying in our depression or anxiety mm-hmm. or maybe defensive about yeah. what we think we need that doesn't align with scripture or what God has said we need. Like these are things that we have to evaluate and you need to be willing to do it for your daughters um, who are growing up in an even more insane time that doesn't know what a woman is or what a woman is for or what God has said about how to handle the fact that we do live in a very sinful world. So you can leave us a voicemail at 470-465-0475. Don't forget to read a Jerry Bridges book or just join us at book club at patreon.com slash theologians. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. Oh, make me over.